This morning we have a great privilege, you know, here a couple weeks ago, Doran uh, Olin, one of our elders, got up and shared about Anthony Rozier and, and uh, Jessica down in Argentina and what God is doing through their church plant and kind of an extension of that and a financial need they have that um, hopefully we are all praying about how we can sow into that. One thing that's important when we talk about sowing into things, that would be sowing is the Christian word for giving money, okay? But it just sounds so smooth, sowing. But um, when we do that, you know, a lot of times we think, oh, that's for the wealthy or that's for those who have a lot. You know, no, it's not about that because it's not just about the money that the people end up receiving. It's about what's going on inside of us as well. There's two things taking place. There's what God is doing inside of us. And there's also what happens with what we give. So whether it's a quarter, whether it's two dollars, Whether it's $100, $1,000, it's not so much about the dollars. It's about the act of obedience. And it's about the act of saying, Lord, this is what I have right now. Whether it's a big old basket or whether it fits in the palm of your hand. Lord, but this is yours and I trust you. What are you asking me to do with this? How do you want me to glorify you with what I have? So I want to encourage you that... This, when we talk about that, it's not just for a, for a couple, but it's for all of us to get involved. And this morning, we also have a, another couple, um, Andre and Karen Provost. Will you guys come up here real quick? <clears throat> These guys are my heroes because um, you might not know this, but they're a tad bit older than I am. And uh, But they have decided, they came back and uh, they have served as missionaries in Thailand, in Ecuador, in Honduras. Was it Ecuador too? Yeah, in Honduras. And then they came back to this here and they were in the Portland metro area for a while. And then they said, we want to go back out to the field. And they went to, uh, went back to Thailand. And so we sent them out. And so they uh, partnered with us as their home church, and they are back, and they've been back here for a little bit and kind of traveling around, seeing some other churches and ministries that they work with, but this is their home church, and so we've asked for them to share just a little bit about what God has been doing and what they believe God is about to do there in Thailand and just to hear those updates, so I just want to say what a joy it is and what an honor it is to consider you guys part of this family and just to hear um, how you guys are allowing God to continue to work through your life. Well, it is so good to be home again. It's just so good to worship in this house, in our house. We're just, we're just grateful. I feel free to worship. It's, it's wonderful. And we appreciate uh, you sending us out and um, we thank you that you are, that we are part of you, and you are a part of us. And Andre's going to do the update thing. All right. Well, um, want to thank you also. Um, one thing I noticed in these past few years, I felt like a little bit like Nehemiah, and I remember uh, in the story of Nehemiah, he he. Uh, had this heaviness in his heart for the part of Israel, a wall needing to be built. And the same thing happened both Karen and I a few years ago. 
in 2018 while we were attending this church and we were taking the perspectives course and we had this heaviness of our heart that, that the people of the Isan people in Northeast Thailand, how they needed to be reached and how they hadn't been as really that reached as we would really hope. We had already spent 21 years there. So we decided, you know, like Nehemiah, we need to go there. And instead of going to the king of Persia, we ended up talking to the members of City Harvest. <laughs> you know, is this a heaviness of heart that we could go and try to bring the gospel and get it to those places that haven't heard? But we really had to go back. First thing Nehemiah did was he went and he had to look at the, the, the condition of the wall and see how it is. So we spent the last year or so looking at what's going on there in the Isan. And I remember going to a, a meeting, a leadership meeting, because there was one area that we had worked. We had worked there um, 21 years ago, and when we, I mean, not 20, 13 years ago, and we had left, left to work in the hands of the nationals, and it has grown, it's grown from about uh, nine churches to, to over 20 churches. But when we were back there, we we're like, you know, couldn't it be doing better than this? So I was telling them the story of uh, uh, two men who were trying to get to the South Pole, uh, Munson and, and Scott. And, and Munson, he did a lot of research before he went, and he made it there in a few months. Scott, he never made it. He didn't do the research. He didn't know, you know where the places are to go and all that. And so I began to ask them, I said, you know, you've got like 20 churches, but there's over 1,000 villages around here. How many villages have you, have, have, are still have not heard the gospel? And they all looked at me and asked the question, he said, how many villages are there? They don't even know. <laughs> so I began to do some work and, and get some maps and I found out from my daughter how to do mapping and, and be able to make maps to show them where the villages are located. We use uh, uh, Google mapping where you can see where the villages are. And as uh, that's one part of the vision is to make sure that, that all these, these villages could hear the gospel. But as I looked over all over Isan, this only covered 4% of the, the whole Isan area. And so what do we got to do next? Well, Nehemiah, he had to mobilize the people to go. And I look, how many people will it take? How many teams would it take to be able to reach the whole area of Isan to finish the task? And came up with 24 teams. And so that's what, our, what we've been doing is we're, we're like been meeting in the last few months with different agencies and find out, can you send a team? Now, here, a lot of missionaries have gone to Thailand. A lot of missionaries work in Thailand, but it's usually the same process. They, they go to the, to the cities, the educated people. But this is a different kind of uh, work because 50% of the Isan people are not educated. 50% of the Isan people do not live in the cities. They live in separated villages in the farm. And I remember when I first met Joy, and one day he's the young man who's now overseeing the whole work of this 4% of villages. And he's like walking through the field and he has these cows in his hand. And I said, why are you holding just two cows? He's a shepherd. And he says, because these are the rebellious cows. And behind him were other cows that were coming, walking, and following, and he wasn't holding them. I said, why do you, 
you know, why are they just following? He says, well, that's what they do. We take the rebellious ones, we hold them, and the other cows follow. I said, okay, well, that's what we need to do in the church. <laughs> well, anyways, to tell the story a little bit more, was that there's this uh, organization called the Evangelical Fellowship of Thailand, and they receive, uh, give out visas to lots of missionaries. And during that period of time, they weren't too happy about our work because they were emphasizing we need to get educated people. We need to make sure that anyone wants to be a pastor needs to pass 12th grade. And these guys only had sixth grade education. So anyways, a few uh, weeks ago, I made a call back to Thailand to talk to the guy who oversees the visa. I went to call him only to ask about my visa. And while we were talking, he says, you know, I've been thinking about what we did back in the days when, when you were here. He said, I think we need to do that more. He said, I'm getting bored of the way things are going around here. <laughs> so he says, I've got a, a family, a, a Cambodian family that are becoming to be missionaries. Uh, and then, well, I think I'd like to send them up there. And then some other fam. And then he says that later, he sends me a letter. He said, there's this Baptist family that's interested in working. So the idea is that we want to be able to be like a hub and train these teams to go to all the areas of the ESAN and reach the 11 million uh, unengaged villages. I mean, 11 unengaged people, not, not villages. The villages is only, uh, it could be a, a few hundred thousand, 100,000 or so. I haven't got the figures exactly, but he wants to reach all these unengaged. So if anybody's interested in partnering with us, I mean, it could be partnering in prayer, it could be partnering in, in giving, or even partnering in wanting to go to be, become one of these teams. Uh, we'll be in the back, and there'll be these little cards, and, and we'd like to beat with you so we get to know you also. We'd like to have a, you know, we might have a, a little room here in the church that we'll be able to use during these next few weeks. And anybody who's interested, just come back and let us know, and, and we'll make a time to get together. Thank you. You can keep the mic. Amen. Stay, hey, Andre, why don't you stay up here with me? You know, I, I think it's very inspiring to see the provosts who are in retirement age, and uh, when they presented, we want to go back out in the field, the elders weren't easy on them. They weren't easy on me either. They wanted, like, uh, signed letters, you know, like, you know what you're doing, you're, you're sane. And I remember Andre writing a letter to the elders saying, listen, I'm willing just to die there if that's what it means. I just want to let you know that I know what I'm getting myself into. They wanted us to interview their children. Are their, are their children okay with this? The children, hey, that's the way they are. They're crazy for Jesus, and they just go, and, uh, and they plant churches, and this is what we do. This is what our family is all about. You know, our, our life is about his will, as, as Pastor Peter has been saying. Can I hear an amen on that? It really is down the bottom line. It's about doing his will, whatever that is. Now, we don't all go to China, we don't all go to Thailand, we don't all go to, you know, Kyrgyzstan or Afghanistan or Tajikistan or all the different stans that we get ourselves involved in here, but we can be involved in passionately praying and interceding and giving financially and processing, supporting. It takes all of us to do this. You say, this is just a lot of, there's just a lot of need out there, Bob. There is. And uh, it's like a big elephant. And how do you eat an elephant? 
bite by bite, one bite at a time. And so we're doing everything we can with the resources we have, with the people we have, and we have great faithful people like the provosts who have done an incredible job in planting churches where the gospel is not heard. And let's just pray right now for Thailand. Would you stand to your feet one more time and with me? And I, I'm going to ask you to intercede uh, Pentecostal style. Okay, can I do that? Okay, I, I, always, I always feel this gravitational thing to become more formal. And I just always want to have this thing in me. I just want to shake it off. Because we, we, we need to understand that God's given us the Holy Spirit to fulfill the Great Commission. We don't want to hide him into a closet, do we? So I want you to start interceding right now for Thailand. I just want you to begin just to pray out. Come on, I want you to verbally just begin to say, God, come and visit Thailand and start praying. You can pray in the spirit if you want to pray in the spirit. Go, we just begin to pray right now. We're thanking you, Lord, for Thailand. Thank you, Jesus. Spirit of intercession for Thailand, Lord. For those in the north, those who do not know you. Mm, Jesus, open their hearts. Open their hearts. Now let's pray that God give labors. Jesus, you said labors. We pray for labors in the harvest. Mm. Labors in the harvest. You're the provost, those who will come alongside and say, we will walk with you, we will labor with you. Let them come from the north, south, east, and the west, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the gospel to be declared by your people in places where it's not heard. Oh, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's tell the provost how much we appreciate them. They got a display out in the foyer. They'll be answering questions afterwards. And if you want to just check out what they're doing, it's very, very exciting. It's kind of interesting working with people around the nations, kind of like what my schedule is sometimes. It's never been like this, but thank God for WhatsApp and Skype and Zoom meetings, and uh, here about three weeks ago, I did a conference in Mumbai, India, okay, with hundreds of pastors uh, from my bedroom. And uh, I spoke for two hours to this pastor's conference, and, you know, I looked very formal from the waist up. I had my pajamas on, my waist down, and <laughs> nine o'clock at night, my time was like 10 o'clock in the morning, their time, and, and I preached two sessions at this major conference, and just tomorrow morning, I'm going to be on the phone with Anita Estabadadi and, and, and Danish at uh, 7 a.m. in the morning. Just, just, you know, how many boomers remember the Jetsons? Remember you saw the TV screen, they're kind of talking to each other, that'll never happen, but we're doing it all the time. That's how we're doing global work and uh, unique times. I always tease Sue, I get my cup of coffee. Well, I'm talking to uh, Tajikistan this morning, so bye, have a good time, you know, and uh, 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 just God's just shrunk the world so that we can reach it. Shrunk the world so we can reach it. All right, here we are. Let's, uh, let's get into the word today. We are uh, on a series that I started last week and entitled uh, Christmas and the Work of Christ. And uh, I know that there was rumors out there that I don't like uh, Christmas carols. I, I do like Christmas carols. My point was there's a lot of songs we sing at Christmas that has nothing to do with uh, Christmas at all. It doesn't even have to do with Santa Claus. I mean, how sacrilegious can that be? And, uh, it just happened to do with crashing, you know, sleighs in the snow and, 
and uh, keeping a girl tight to you by the fireplace, not letting her go. Those types of things, okay, that, uh, that we sing. We think it's just so nice, you know, to sing them at Christmas time. We're talking, though, about why Jesus, what we are celebrating in this season, and why Jesus became man. And I want to talk today about what Christ's death has done for us, because as I made this statement, I established this reality last week is this, that the world loves many things about Jesus, but his death is not one of them. They love Jesus coming to us. We love singing about the king. And here's the, here's the interesting part. Everybody sings Christmas carols. It's hilarious for me to listen to unbelievers singing some of the songs I'm gonna pop up here today and some of the lyrics. They're singing good old-fashioned first awakening theology. And they're singing it with great passion, not even realizing what they're singing. And I remember being 16 years old and going to a midnight mask. And I was one of those Catholics that, you know, I got excited about going to church about once a year. And uh, I went to midnight mass. And I went by myself, and it was packed with wall-to-wall people. And, and the Catholics are kind of funny because they sing Protestant hymns okay, for Christmas. Okay, they sing. Well, the Christmas carols were written by, by musicians and, and, uh, and, and lyricists who came, were birthed out of the revivals that we study about. And the Catholic Church sings them at, at, at midnight mass, and it's exciting. And I'm singing this song, and... I, I know now what happened to him, but I didn't know what happened to him when I was 16. The anointing of the presence of God came on me at the age of 16. I mean, I was touched radically by something that I would recognize something's happening to me as I'm singing this song. The next time I felt that feeling is when I heard a charismatic Catholic preaching on knowing Jesus being filled with the Spirit, and I took communion, and that's when fire hit my body and within two hours, I was in front of a jail cell preaching the gospel to prisoners at Kittitas County Jail. And uh, I, I recognized the same thing came on me. He said, well, can, can the Spirit of God come on somebody in a Catholic church? Yeah, absolutely. Can come on somebody in a Mormon church? Can come on somebody in a mosque? I mean, come on, does, does he not fill heaven and earth? Is he not omnipresent? Does he not touch the hearts of those who are really seeking after him? And, uh, and uh, so... So these Christmas carols are, are powerful, but they're full of a message that sometimes the world doesn't want to really listen to. And this thing about Christmas, as I talked about, really is about the death of Christ on the cross. Now, I know that we don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't match the baby sweet Jesus and swaddling cloths, you know, in a manger. Okay, I recognize that. But you got to connect the dots on this, and I hope that I'm doing that so that we can stop and reflect and appreciate what Jesus has done for us. The world doesn't like the, the death message because they see the death on the cross, I said last week, is barbaric and, and really can't be part of a loving God's plan. That cannot be a part of what a loving God would do. At its best, it's an example of God suffering with us on that cross so that he can identify with our pain or he can be an example of what it is for us to suck it up and go through life suffering, and that's why he did that. You know, and the, the violent part of the cross, which it is a violent issue, the, the crosses, we can't pretend that it's not, is that uh, why man's repulsed by that because it, they say if that is true, then that would mean something about me I don't want to really recognize is that I am not good. And there's something about me that's evil that you would have to suffer that 
for me. And I don't wanna, I don't want to admit that. I don't wanna face that reality in my own life. You know, the, the whole tension of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is this tension. It's a tension between God's wrath and God's love. And the whole Bible, Genesis on, has that tension in there the whole time. God's holiness, as I said last week, demands justice for disobedience. And uh, it says in Ezekiel 18.4, it says the soul or the one who sins is the one who will die. So the penalty of sin in the Bible is death. God told the first man and the first woman, in the day that you would eat of this tree in rebellion, trying to be autonomous from me, trusting in your own wisdom, when you eat that, you shall die. And death entered the human race because man sinned. And death was a part of that. And, and so death is, really means separation. It's separation from God. That's why Paul said, before I gave my life to Jesus, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Now, I was breathing, I was conscious, I was even had a God consciousness, but I was not in a relationship with him. I was cut off from his life. And so is anybody who doesn't put their faith in Christ. They are dead. They're walking dead people. They're separated from God now, and when they pass away, they'll be separated from God for all eternity if they don't accept Christ. That's the simple message of the gospel. And so we're dead. It means to be, death means to, well, the soul is separated from the body. It's obviously loved ones are separated from loved ones as people face the grief of, of death. But what, what here's the beauty of this Christmas story is that God is so moved in love that his solution is to step up and become the provision of his own justice. That he steps up and says, I'm gonna satisfy this thing by that I'm gonna fulfill the judgment that needs to take place and I'm gonna put it upon myself. That's where the love is. So it may look violent on one end, but the violence is that he submits himself to his own justice to, to pay for the sin so you and I do not have to do that. There is the love of God seen. He is his death taste death for you and I, and he takes away the curse of death. Now, let's just, let's just look at this and look at a few Christmas carols, legitimate ones. Let's do joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. What's that talking about? It's talking about taking you back all the way to Genesis uh, chapter 3, and what God said was going to happen as a result of man's rebellion against God. He comes, this baby Jesus comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. So you get this choir, this Dickens choir, these guys have the scarves on, as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. Okay, they're singing about being cursed because the only thing that removes that curse is the death of Christ. The cross removes the curse of death off of man. In Charles Wesley's song, Ark the Herald, Angel Sings, he, he, he basically gives us the reason why God became man, and that was to do away with the curse of death. Mild, he lays his glory by. He's talking about what in theology is called the kenosis. He emptied himself of his prerogative to operate as God by becoming man. He lays that aside so that he would be born as you and I, as a human being. Born, 
Why? That no man, no more, excuse, that man no more may die. He's born to raise the sons of earth. He's born to give them second birth. Come on. I am born again. I am changed. I am here today preaching. I studied my Bible yesterday. I dug into what God wanted to say today because there's something in me that's different. He gave me a new heart. He gave me a new bent. He gave me a new nature. He gave me a new smell. He gave me a new inclination. I am born again. Say to someone next to you saying, I'm born again. again. We don't use that language anymore. That is uh, Bob McGregor over there. He's a born again Christian. I am a born again Christian. And I'm proud of being a born again Christian because it's not my work. I wasn't born by my own will. He did something in me, and he's done something in you. And Wesley says he laid his glory by, he tasted death, and he removed the curse of death, and now he's raising sons of the earth to become sons of God. Christmas message. I know within that, we don't have a cross where Jesus is dangling on those hymns, but it's in the theology of that. And then, of course, God rest ye merry gentlemen. I love this hymn. God rest ye merry, because it kind of has a lot of baritone and bass in it, okay? (laughs) Come on, let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Why? So that we could just have nativity scenes? No. Here it is. To save us all from Satan's power. We were slaves to sin, slaves to deception, slaves to rebellion. When we were gone astray. It's interesting, Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah And he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone to do our own thing. Now, I do have one sheep and two goats and one rebellious sheepdog right now. (laughs) So the word sheep, it always has a feeling with me as an emotion that that, uh, it means rebellion. There's nothing cooperative about a, a, a sheep. They don't come up, just eat out of your hand, and you're the loving shepherd. You got to chase them down. I don't know how many legs I've broken literally tackling my sheep just so that Sue could fleece it. Okay, but, uh, you know, how many elders have tried, been out in the field with me? Rod walked in a limp for about a week. I don't know where you are, Rod. There you are, Rod. Trying to get a ram that we tried to hassle, and the ram basically bore him into the knee, and he was limping for a few weeks. There's nothing wonderful about sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray because that's the nature of a sheep. And it says this, the Lord laid on him, this child that was born a man, the iniquity of us all. He judged him. He laid our guilt on him. He brought his wrath upon him so that you and I could have a relationship with God. It's a Christmas. Come on. We have gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Now, this sounds so intense and, and, and gnarly and, and violent, but man, it brings comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. It's, it's glad tidings at his expense, but it's glad tidings. And of course, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, thou rod of Jesse's stem. Talking about the prophecy that the Messiah would come out of the line of Jesse, the father of David, King David. From every foe deliver them that trust thy mighty power to save. And notice this, and give them victory or the grave. 
But what the death of Jesus has done is the death of Jesus has taken the sting out of death. Now, COVID, one of the things about COVID, regardless how you feel about COVID, I lost a lot of friends in COVID. People who worked with me in the gospel who are in eternity today because of COVID. They said they would have died anyway. Well, maybe not so soon. And uh, there, was a, there was a death there that took place. My family, as you well know, has experienced death. And like some of your families, experienced intense death. But here's the wonderful message in the midst of even all that, whether it was Danny Bonilla or, or Carlos Penaloza or others that have, have, have died in faith who were great men of God that uh, walked with, in the gospel with, is this, that the sting of death has been taken away. Paul said this, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? God has removed the curse of death because we're no longer separated from God. Paul said, absent from the body, what does it say? Present with the Lord. Present with the Lord. And of course, then we understand this, then all of a sudden these famous Christmas verses out of the Gospels have a lot deeper meaning. She will give birth to a son, the angel said to Joseph, and you are to give him the name Jesus where God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. How? Through his death. Through, not metaphorically, not by kind of bringing a loving example, but through his death. What's, what Simeon say to Mary and Joseph are dedicating Jesus in the temple, and Simeon blessed them and said to, to Mary, his mother, this child is destined this is a wonderful prophecy you really want to get as a, young, as a mother of your baby. This isn't a normal baby. This, is, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul, pointing to Mary also. That's a, that's a rough baby dedication prophecy. We're up here, you know, like everyone's got their nice dress. You know, this child is going to provoke many to rebel against God and go to hell. Okay, you know, that's kind of what it's saying. This child here is going to cause a civil war. Well, well, that's not a baby dedication. It's, yeah, this is Jesus. See, the whole ministry of Jesus offended his people. What he taught, who he hung out with, who he chose, the customs that he broke, that he believed violated the law of God. His teachings on complete righteousness, and you heard that was said, but I say to you, I'm going deeper than what you've normally lived up to. It all offended the people. His re prophetic rebuke of the religious establishment of his day. All of that provoked these people actually to send him to the cross, which was his mission anyway. And the cross itself offended them. The cross itself, Paul said, it's a stumbling block. Why? Because how could a cursed man be the Messiah? How could the curse of the cross be God's answer to save us? Because we're already righteous by the law. I remember sitting next to a member of the Knesset at a banquet. He took his fist next to me. We are the righteous ones. We are the righteous ones. There's none righteous, Paul said. No, not 
one. There's none who does good. There's none that seeks after God. And so we may think we're righteous, and this is what's offensive about the cross. They say, how do you know if you're really preaching the cross? Well, a Mormon may not like your message. A Jew who trusts in the law may not like your message. A moralist will not like your message because you're saying that all that you do is insufficient and you will not have life with God outside of the death of Christ in your place. That's the gospel. And so Jesus goes to the cross and great division takes place. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. There he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Notice that the word here is must, 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 because it's the plan. It is the plan of why he came to earth to become man. It's why we're celebrating the incarnation of God, God coming to us. And it's such a loving demonstration that we should celebrate. But remember, that love has a mission. And it wasn't just to say how much God loves us, but to actually to die and suffer in our place. And then, of course, Jesus said this in John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Notice the tension that Pete has actually talked to us about today. But he said, this is not in the garden. This is actually prior to that. But he says, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. I was born and he became man for this hour to die as a man for the human race. It's interesting. He's having a talk with himself. No, you're not wiggling out of this one. This is why I came. This is why I was born. This is why the Magi came to me. This is why the angels appeared to the shepherds. This is why, this is why my life has been unique for this very hour, that I would die on the cross. Of course, Hebrews says that we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. He's exalted above everything now, isn't he? And now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Taste death for everyone. Now, let me bring this home today. What does the blood of Jesus mean to me? Let's personalize this now to you and to myself. What does it mean to me? I'm going to give you nine things. Someone could probably say, well, Bob, I found five more you didn't find. Congratulations. I'm only giving you nine things. But there are nine things I think that you can wrap your, your mind around, your heart around, your devotions around when you think about this subject called the blood of Jesus. I mentioned to you once that uh, years ago, there was a great church in Wenatchee called Bethesda. And uh, they were really, really used in, in back in the, the charismatic Jesus people days and had a Bible college and really kind of a school of arts. They were really probably one of the first churches really to incorporate things like choreography and dance and stuff and worship and expression. And it was a great church out there in eastern Washington, Wenatchee. And I went to summer school at Ellensburg at Central one summer. Sue and I were married and we went up to a service in the midweek to hear Jamie Buckingham, the famous author, speak. And um, 
And, and so I went into the church. Uh, the foyer, in those days, a carpet was, was a really cool carpet, was kind of purplish. Very purple carpet was really cool back in the 70s and in uh, the, the early 80s. And the carpet was purple, and the wall coming into the sanctuary was all mirror. But the lighting that they did was really unique because when the lighting shone upon the carpet and you looked at yourself in the mirror coming into the sanctuary, you were completely red. You, you get the message. You're covered by what? You're covered by the blood. And over the doors, was enter his gates with thanksgiving into his courts with praise. And what qualifies you is what? Blood. So it was a great, it was a great visual. It drove home to me. I could see myself completely red and, uh, as I'm walking into the sanctuary. That I am covered by the blood. That's what gives me permission to, to come before his presence with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. What does the blood mean to me? Well, the first thing it means is this. It speaks to God on my behalf. The writer of Hebrews says this. He's talking about the superiority of the new covenant over the old, and he says to Jesus, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and he goes back to Abel. Remember Cain and Abel, and Abel was offered a righteous offering, Cain an unrighteous offering. We're not going to get into why they were that way. And God accepted Abel's and not Cain and was the first murderer in human history. Cain, being jealous, murders his brother and covers it all up. And God says, I hear Abel's blood crying to me. And, uh, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's going back to the Old Testament and he's saying the blood of Jesus is even more significant than the blood of Abel. He says, he says it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What was Abel's blood crying out for? Abel's blood was crying out for justice. It was crying out for justice. Avenge my blood. That's what his blood was crying out. If you go to the U.S. Uh, Memorial for the Holocaust in Washington, D.C., and I would advise anybody who goes to D.C. to go to that. I think it's a life-changing experience. And you go through all these things where you go through the ghettos and you go through the solution and you go through the trains that took them to Auschwitz and you see their shoes and their glasses. And I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty it shakes you up. And then you kind of come into this marble room with a flaming torch. And this scripture in Genesis, I think it's 4-7, is quoted there with this flame, is that the, the blood of your brother is crying out to me. Abel's blood was crying out for justice. But the writer of Hebrews says Jesus' blood speaks of something better. You know what it was crying out for? Forgiveness. It was crying out, justice has been satisfied. I cry out to you, Father, to forgive. It speaks of better things than Abel. The second thing the blood of Jesus does for you and I frees me from guilt before God. Now notice this, since we have been justified by his blood. Now a lot of people say, yeah, we're justified by faith. You're justified by his blood. Yes, you're justified by faith, but if no blood, no, your faith is worthless. No blood, your faith doesn't mean anything to God. You're justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Justified means I'm acquitted from guilt. Justified means that, uh, that uh, my record has been absolutely cleared. 
Uh, justified means I, I am by the verdict of God not guilty. I'm not guilty. Now, you're either guilty before God or you're not guilty before God. There's no in-between. Well, I'm kind of guilty, not guilty. No, there's none of that. You're either not guilty or you're guilty. Jesus took away your guilt by his blood when you put faith in that. Just like the blood was on the doorposts during the great killing of the firstborn in the book of Exodus, all those that were behind the door of the blood were saved from death. It was a picture of the cross. <coughs> a lamb for a house. I am justified by the blood of Jesus. Now, where's the bragging? It's completely done away with. Where's the posturing and superiority over other people? We are the righteous one. It's done. I come to God on one basis, the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. The third thing it does is it brings me peace in my relationship with God. Notice what Colossians says, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, the blood ended this. It ended the war between God and man. The war is over. It was Luther, and quoting from Romans 5.1, it says, God's put away his bow and arrow. Okay, there's no wrath towards you. There's no hostility towards you. There's no wall between you and God. There's no judgment. There's no accusation. There's no wrath because blood has been shed and justice has been satisfied. And the blood of Jesus cries out, as it says, even greater than Abel, saying, forgive, justice has been served. The blood of Jesus, number four, relieves my conscience from condemnation. Appreciate Pastor Pete's honesty about what happened to him in, in the woods yesterday. I've had those experiences where you're just minding your own business, kind of doing something in life, and you get whacked by the enemy in your brain and your head. Any people have ever had that experience? Where, I mean, where did this come from? I mean, I'm enjoying a football game or something, and, and just the voice of the enemy comes to bring up the past. How much more, the book of Hebrews says, comparing the sacrifices of the Old Testament to the blood of Jesus in the New how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now, I know that there's things that if we contemplate about, things of our past, as Pete said, that something that took place years ago in his past that we can feel such shame and such disqualification. You know, the enemy takes advantage of that. Comes, comes and he pulls that out and begins to haunt you with that. But God has cleansed our conscience by the blood of Jesus. It's clear. The blood of Jesus cleanses. You know, uh, Sue, when we, we first time we went before a prophetic team, we were going to a, a, a Bible college. There was an outreach Bible college, a Portland Bible college on a church up in Hoquiam, Washington. We didn't attend the church, but the pastor of the church kind of saw the grace on Sue and I said, we're having this presbytery, this prophetic assembly. We want you guys to go through it. You know, I'm probably two and a half years in Jesus. Sue's probably out a year and a half. We were pretty young converts and just learning the ropes. So we we're hungry for God. And, and what was spoken there to the T is, taking place completely in our life. And, uh, you know, we sat there the first night and 
the prophecies were kind of strong, you know, they were kind of correcting people and adjusting people. It's kind of an intense prophetic assembly, you know. Here's poor Sue, you know, she's just, she's just tormented. And uh, she went home and she cried all the way home and she cried going to sleep. I don't want to go up there because she was under all, she was being haunted by things that took place prior to the cross. And I'll never forget, I, you know, she fell asleep and I, and I went in the living room and I just got on my knees and I said, Lord, I don't know what you're going to say to us tomorrow but the one thing I'm asking you to point out is point out her condemnation and deliver her from that. That's, I'm asking you to do that, Lord. So we go and they preach, they, they prophesy great words over us and it was exciting and it was all done when the prophets came back and he said, I've seen you during the struggles, prophesying right over Sue, when the enemies come to you over and over and over again and he says, what about this and what about that? And you are, you are under the blood of Jesus. And uh, you are a daughter of the king. Your past is washed. And the next time the enemy comes to you and says, what about this? You are to say, Manasseh, Manasseh, the Lord's caused me to forget. And Sue was delivered from condemnation like that, never to return again. But, you know, that's what happens sometimes. The enemy comes to our conscience and starts haunting us about something. But the blood of Jesus... See, this is the, the thing. I don't have to do anything. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. I don't have to say I got to, you know, do 100 jumping jacks. I got to go on a pilgrimage. I got to not eat meat. <laughs> That'd be horrible. I, I, you, know, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, I don't have to do any of those things. It's just the blood of Jesus does this. I can rest in it so I can serve the living God. The... Uh, Fifth thing that the blood of Jesus does is it separates me from the fallen human race. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, Hebrews tells us. Now, he's, he's comparing the suffering of Jesus as a fulfillment of what was known as the burnt offering. When they offered the burnt offering every morning and every evening in Israel, they had to take the, the carcasses and everything was left on that altar, and they had to take it outside of the city, outside of the camp. And what was outside of the camp? That was a place of uncleanness. What was, taking, what was the, the camp? The camp was a place of cleanness. Where was Jesus crucified, being cursed for you and I? Inside Jerusalem or outside Jerusalem? Outside of Jerusalem. He went out to the cursed place so this could happen to you and I. He suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Some versions might say that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. Sancti sanctify or holy are the same concept, the same, really the same definition. Now, the word holy makes us think of rules and thou shall nots. And I will have to say there are some shall nots, okay? We all live with some shall nots, whether we like to say, you admit that or not. There's a lot of things that I don't do this, I don't do this because of our love for Jesus and our love for people, there are those that shall nots. But holiness isn't really about a bunch of rules. The idea of holiness is actually being selected. You're being selected not just to, to, to be apart from that, but to be a part of something else. You are selected for a purpose. Now, I think you could use a toothbrush for a lot of things. You could, you could take battery acid off the terminal of your car. You can, 
clean tile, you know, it's all grubby. But there is a toothbrush that you all have, at least I think you might have, or everybody would have, unless you brush your, feet, your, your teeth with your finger. It's, it's for your teeth. It's for your mouth. You, you've selected that, and that toothbrush has one purpose and one purpose only. I mean, if Sue's kind of cleaning up after the dog with my toothbrush, I'm not going to brush my teeth with that thing. Okay, it, that's not what it was for. My, my toothbrush is for my teeth. Well, when you're holy, you've been selected for something. And God has selected you on the basis of the blood of Jesus, and now he can touch you the way he wants to use you, and you're selected for this thing. You know, a lot of people have used the word retire with me when I transition the church over to Pete and Tamar. And I, I just... Don't use that word with me because at first it's an unbiblical term. Okay, all of a sudden there's nothing in the Bible says, Lord, I'm almost going to be 68 when I give the church and I'm done with what you've asked me to do. I'm done. It's fishing. It's beaches. It's my dog. It's my honeydew list with Sue. Playing with the grandkids, grow fat and die. No, that's not. All of a sudden, yeah, you don't do that. I, I'm a toothbrush that's been selected to preach and teach the Bible. And I'll do it to one, to 10, to 100, to 1,000, wherever God wants me to do it. That's what I do. I will always be that toothbrush. I'll be nothing but that toothbrush because the blood of Jesus separated me to that call. He died not only for my relationship with God, but he also died that my calling could be released and take place, and yours also, to make us holy. And yes, there are some thou shall nots in there. Just like an athlete has a lot of thou shall nots that he doesn't get himself involved in so he can do what he's called to do, and the same for you and me. The blood separates me from the rest of the human race. You've been selected. You say, well, I don't want to be special like that, but just face it, you are a privileged people. I just want to just say something to you. There are things that you experience that you cannot say, well, the world can experience them too, whether they believe in Jesus or not. That is not true. This is one thing that really drives me nuts all the time. You know, I just tell business people, well, they're Christians or not, just tithe and God will bless them. No, he won't. That's not even biblical. Even the sacrifices of a sinner are an abomination to God. You are selected and you are favored in ways that you don't even realize you're favored. Now, this isn't about pride because it's not you. It goes right back to this. It's the blood of Jesus. Now, we want them to come in. We want them using this picture to come into the ark. We want them to come out from under judgment. And they can by faith. By faith. The blood gives me the privilege and permission to enter God's presence. Wow. The privilege to enter into his presence. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, I may be conscious of sin. I may be wrestling with a besetting sin that I can't shake. I may have a devil accusing me. I may even have God's people upset with me. 
But as I approach God, he says, Bob, and he says the same thing to you, come on in. Come on in. The blood has paid the entrance fee. So come talk to me. Well, Lord, I'm not in my A game. That's okay. The blood covered it. Come here. Let's talk. Yeah, man. Lord, I, I failed a few times. The blood's covered it. Let's have communion. Let me now pour grace into you. My ticket to his presence is the blood. No, man, I read five chapters yesterday of the Bible. That's not your ticket. I fast twice a week. That's not your ticket. I go to church every Sunday. That's not your ticket. Your ticket is the blood of Christ. That's what brought you near. The seventh thing that blood does, it brings me into relationship with others in community to participate with the blood of Jesus, with what the blood of Jesus, of, of, of blood of Jesus Christ means. We know that communion is this, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. We participate together in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? See, receiving the forgiveness of sins because of the blood of Jesus is something I share with you in community, something that you share with me in community. I say to you, I'm cleansed. You say to me, I'm cleansed. We're cleansed. You're cleansed. I'm cleansed. We're all cleansed. We're, we're making that declaration together. We're supposed to. We're reaffirming that thing. We're gagging that voice that came on Pastor Pete yesterday. We are saying, no, we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus and his broken body, what he suffered for you and I. The eighth thing that, that the blood of Jesus does is it gives me the security to know that I have eternal life. Jesus said this, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now, eat my flesh and drink my blood is figurative. What he's saying, when someone places their faith, when I place my faith, you place your faith, and my dependence and your dependence on what Jesus did in suffering for me in his body on that cross and the beatings and the scourgings and the whippings and his crucifixion and his shed blood, and we gave his life for me and I put my faith in that. I possess, I'm not going to possess. I possess, you possess now. You're not going to possess eternal life. Eternal life. You know, the night that we took Ryan off that ventilation machine, when I got there, I had tried, I was, remember I was traveling all the way from Romania to get to the hospital. And, uh, Julia, my oldest daughter, knew a church in Palm Springs and got a guitar and Mort was playing it. There's a little ER. They probably handled about five beds in this ER. It was just a little circle and it was a little curtain that just cut us off from everybody else. I mean, it was a small room. But we, we sang that Matt Redman song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. And uh, we worshiped as we said goodbye to Ryan. We worshiped and said, he's, he's yours. The taste of death is gone. He's leaving this state into your, your state, Lord. And 
we're giving him to you in worship. You know, the one thing I can really brag about Leslie through all this is that she never lost her faith when people questioned her on stuff. She goes, well, I'm a Christian and I believe that he's in heaven. Eternal life. The great conversation was with Wit. He was like four years old in our backyard. Next door neighbor lives in a duplex. They're, they're, they're atheist, agnostic. They really are not, don't want to come to church. Trust me, we've, we've invited them. Little boy asks him, you know, Wit across the fence, another four-year-old boy, you know. He said, uh, you know, you live here? No, my grandparents live here. Well, where, where, does your, where does your dad live? Well, my, dad's, my dad is in heaven. Sue's listening to this on the back deck. This other four-year-old kid in the fence, heaven, where's that? Well, heaven is way up there. The other four-year-old looks way up and says, you mean up there where the clouds are? Wit goes, no, 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 no. Way past those clouds. Sue looked, and there's two four-year-olds staring someplace called heaven. Whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And last, it gives me the foundation to worship. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. How? How? By his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him, notice what is birthed out of this reality. To him be glory and power forever and ever Amen. When I'm overwhelmed by the revelation of what he has done for me, all I can do is worship. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.